probably for all of you people who have children. Raising our children was a really, really busy but happy time. You know, Aaron and I look back on it as the best times of our life, raising our children. As homeschooling parents, there was plenty of time and incentive to make sure that they were the bugaboo of the day properly socialized. You know, it was it was a thing. People were worried back in the 90s that uh, your children wouldn't be socialized, which, uh, you know, in the public schools today means that drug addicts and, uh, and thieves and things like that. But we had to look at, we were challenged to make sure our children were socialized. And so therefore, we had any number of outside activity, outside our home activities, that our children uh, participated in. Uh, at uh, our church, we had Adventure Club. The children went to that every week to be around other children and to learn the things of God. But uh, all three of the kids uh, went to Civil Air Patrol. Uh, got to fly planes, got to wear uniforms, and uh, some of them ended up in the service because of that. There were art lessons involved, uh, piano lessons, softball for Megan, and baseball league for Niels, uh, competitive fencing for Niels. It sort of makes me tired even remembering. I mean, it was one thing after another every night of the week, and uh, what wasn't taken up by them was taken up by church meetings, but as I say, it makes me tired just remembering all these activities now. And I will point out that's why parents should have their children fairly early in their lives, okay? That you have the energy to put into these things. But the favorite activity of all, for my own enjoyment, something I enjoyed doing every single time it came up, were the eight years that Neil spent in the Mountain Fife and Drum Corps, okay? I could go to their performances every week, and it seems like sometimes we did. Wherever they were, I was one of the drivers and would go and follow them around, or follow them around Huntington Beach or Disneyland or Colonial Williamsburg. It never got old, uh, was never drudgery. Despite the great number of practices and performances, I don't know how many times I heard Kevin Garland tell the story of um, the British surrender at Yorktown, but enough times that I'm about to give it to you from memory, okay? After the siege of Yorktown, that ended with the British surrender of its forces, that effectively ended the American Revolution, the British were to lay down their arms. That's one of the terms of the surrender. And they were to do it in a large clearing two miles outside of Yorktown. That is known as Surrender Field. The British General Cornwallis claimed to be ill that day. He could not face surrendering to the American forces. So he claimed to be ill and he sent his second command to, um, to surrender. As they stacked their weapons 
The British Army Band played a popular tune called The World Turned Upside Down, an acknowledgement of the reality of the most powerful army in the world being defeated by a ragtag rabble of colonial farmers armed with their own personal weapons. In a further breach of military norms, the British refused to acknowledge the gathered American army. So as the British began to leave Surrender Field, General Washington ordered the American musicians to play Yankee Doodle, which was a tune that supremely made fun of American manners, customs, military prowess, just everything. It was a complete slam on American forces and General Washington ordered them to play Yankee Doodle and when he did every head in the British Army snapped around to look at the uh, American forces that they had lost to. These American hicks. So on a trip with the Fife and Drums to Colonial Williamsburg I got to hear Niels and the Corps play Yankee Doodle on Surrender Field, which was really a cool thing. It was as though that story of the Yorktown surrender had come to life. Now, in doing further research, that might, might be the only way that this story came to life because no contemporary eyewitness account of the music played that day at Sur uh, tells of music being played at Surrender Field that day. The only account that exists are from two elderly soldiers more than 40 years later uh, in the 1820s. They recounted this event. There's another problem is that uh, George Washington in the surrender agreement denied the British the customary of honor of taking the field to military music uh, supplied by their band. The band was not allowed to play. It was in retaliation, the British did it to the American forces at the surrender at uh, Charlestown, South, uh, uh, South Carolina, uh, would not treat them as military activities, so Washington turned the tables. Another problem is that though there were, was a song called the world turned upside down. The fact is there were many songs called The World Turned Upside Down. You may recall that, that poetry writers back then would take the meter and the common songs of the day and put their words to them. Uh, remember, my country tis of thee is God save the king. Okay, put to different words. Francis Scott Key at the uh, naval battle at Fort McHenry in Baltimore, penned a poem and put it to a popular drinking song of the day called To Anacreon in Heaven, and we know that as our national anthem. Our national anthem was a popular drinking song. Whatever the musical choices that did or did not get played, at Surrender Field, the events that occurred in Yorktown did indeed turn the world upside down, but not nearly the effect 
A few men making their way across Greece on foot did as they brought the grace of Christianity to the heart of the Roman Empire. When we ended our story in Acts last week, Paul and Silas would not leave the jail that they were unjustly imprisoned in until the authorities who ordered their illegal caning and then their imprisonment apologized and escorted them out of the prison. On their departure, the authorities repeatedly begged them to voluntarily leave Philippi because since they had not committed a crime, they could not be expelled as Roman citizens. So after visiting the church they planted in Lydia's house, they uplifted, comforted the brethren, and then continued on their journey. And so we picked that up now in, uh, at the beginning of chapter uh, 17, verses 1 through 9, which read, Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. You know, people express a little bit disbelief that on our frequent trips across the country uh, to visit our children and grandchildren, that our chosen, chosen mode of transportation is by automobile and not by air. I happen to really like the slower pace of travel that uh, car travel permits, actually seeing the changing scenery as we cross the country. The only better way to see it would be on foot, right? Okay? The way Paul and Silas are seeing the picturesque country of Greece. So verse 1, as we go through it verse by verse, says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now, Thessalonica was about 100 miles from Philippi as the crow flies. And Aaron was just asking at the dinner table the other day, why is it always as the crow flies? Okay? 
And now, I was going to look this up so I would have an answer, and I did not do that. I'm assuming that crows don't waste their time, you know, but fly from field to field to uh, strip the new uh, seeds that have been planted. However, you could not get to Thessalonica as the crow flies because we're talking about coastal Greece. And if you've ever seen a map of Greece, this road winds around the coastline for miles. It's sort of like I, I, I scaled off how far Big Bear is away from Lake Arrowhead, and it's 10 miles as the crow flies. And it's an hour by car. So much the same thing. And it takes an hour by car, and my further notes say, unless there's snow. So, uh, in which case, you might never get there. The road they traveled was the Via Ignatia, and it was a major Roman highway constructed in 200 BC that crossed what we now know as modern day Greece, Macedonia, Albania, and Turkey. So, this is where the road was going. It was an extension of the uh, via Appia, the uh, Appian Way, which ran all the way to Rome itself. So this is the road from Rome to every place in the Eastern Empire. That it took the missionaries just three days, according to this uh, uh, statement, and we, we think it, the reason we say it took three days is they mentioned three cities here, and it would have been the cities they stayed in overnight. And they were far enough apart that scholars suspect that they traveled by horse. Because after the severe caning that they received at Philippi, uh, it's doubtful that Paul and Silas could travel as far by foot in a day as they would have had to, to do it in three days. A usual day's foot walk was 20 to 24 miles, and that was would be the most that they would cover. So to cover 35 plus miles a day probably meant by horse. Now they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia where they would have spent, like I say, successive nights. And although Amphipolis was a larger and more important city in the Roman Empire than Philippi that they had just left, they apparently did not preach there or in Apollonia. They went directly to Thessalonica. Now Thessalonica uh, still is the leading city in uh, northern Macedonia district of Greece to this day. At this time it was a city of 200,000 people. It was a major city. It was probably twice the size of Jerusalem uh, at the time of Jesus. And uh, verse 2 says... Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures. We've seen before that this was clearly Paul's pattern to take the gospel to the Jews first, in the local synagogues, but also to the God-fearing Gentiles who would be found there also. The Gentiles, the leading citizens of the city, were often gathered in the synagogue to hear the Hebrew teachings. Now, the Greek phrase that Paul was in the scripture, reasoning from the scriptures for three Sabbaths, uh, actually reads, 
three weeks. It's the same thing in the Greek. So it says that Paul, it may say that Paul uh, uh, reasoned from the scriptures for three weeks with them, but probably it means three Sabbaths. Verse 3 says that Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus, who I proclaim to you, is the Christ. You know, in our uh, devotions, in the devotions at least that I've been giving at our prayer meetings, um, I have several times dealt with modern day Jewish beliefs about messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, the Tanakh to the Jews, and in the yearly synagogue readings from the Torah, and the yearly synagogue readings are on a fixed yearly basis. They never change. They have a Sabbath reading from the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And then they have selected readings from the law, uh, from the prophets. As I say, this never changes. But the interesting thing is not a single messianic prophecy is read in any of their services. They do not read anything that would lead them to Christ, to the Messiah. My last devotion was on why Jesus most often referred to himself as the Son of Man. And sadly, I had never been taught this, but the Son of Man is a messianic prophecy which is explained in Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14, which reads, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the reason Jesus identified himself as the son of man. It was clearly himself calling himself the Messiah. Now, I was asked afterwards if this Daniel passage is read in the, uh, in the uh, Jewish readings every year. It is not. Not a single verse of Daniel is read, and Daniel is a clearly messianic, prophetic book. I looked further not a single line of the book of Psalms is read in them, which is shocking to me, as it is the book most closely associated with their most beloved figure in history, King David. Not one verse of Psalms is in their writing, and you might realize also that Psalms is a very highly messianic book. Modern Judaism is not looking for the Messiah. They do not, by their own admission, believe in him. Uh, in researching this sermon, I came across uh, 
Jewish sources, multiple when I say that, calling Isaiah 53 the forbidden chapter. Okay? Oh, they know about it, but it's the forbidden chapter and will not be read by modern day Jews. And there are any number of videos of Jews, Israeli Jews, who have read it, and American Jews, who have read it, who became Christians. It's the forbidden chapter because, as all of these Jews say, when you read Isaiah 53, you can't help but see Jesus. That's what it is all talking about. In this, I found people who, rabbis, who said that Christians who use Isaiah 53 are leading Jews astray by devious and clever arguments. That's their words, okay? Honestly. Uh, I found Jews who did not realize that Jesus was Jewish. There's a famous, and I think Robin and uh, Steve know who this uh, scientist is, a famous American Jewish scientist who became a Christian back in 1978, okay, by reading Isaiah 53. And he said, and then he went to the New Testament, and he said, I was shocked. He said, I've always been told that the New Testament was Christian propaganda. And he said, what I found was, it was the story of Jews written by Jews. He said, it's the story of my people written by my people and it has been misconstrued to me. And he said, he read further and he did become a, I think his name was James Tour. He became a Christian and he told his father, he said, father, you know, you need to read Isaiah 53. You need to read the New Testament and see what I saw. And his father would not do it and just absolutely would not. And later on in their life, uh, this scientist was going to see an evangelist and uh, his father came along with him. And at the end, the evangelist said, I w and it was evangelism to the Jews, obviously, and the evangelist said, uh, I'd like to see the hands of all the Jews here tonight who believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And the scientist put his hand up. And his father put his hand up. And he nudges his father. He said, Dad, he said, you know, if you believe Jesus is the Messiah, you're supposed to put your hand up. And his father said, I've read what you said to read, and I believe. So, were the Jews of 2,000 years ago, did they read the Old Testament prophecies? Well, yes, they did. But you will notice what it says here, that, that Paul reasoned with them from the scripture, so Paul knew it, explaining, okay, now keep that in mind, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead because the Jews did not believe that the Messiah was going to be killed. They thought he was the conquering king. So Paul had to take them back to the scriptures. This is 2,000 years ago. And explain and prove to them that the Christ had to die. 
This verse argues yes to the question of whether Jews read Old Testament prophecy and if they believed in the Messiah. It does argue yes to both of them. Paul, a rabbi trained in classical Judaism, argues, explains, and persuades in the synagogue at Thessalonica from Scripture. And the only Scripture that existed, as we all know at this time, was the Old Testament. And the only Scriptures he could argue from about the reasons for Jesus' life, death, and resurrection indeed came from the Tanakh, the Jewish Bible. Verse 4 says, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. Just as elsewhere, some Jews believed in the synagogue. But you'll notice, as, as Luke explains this, some of them were persuaded as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Why did so many Greeks believe as opposed to Jews? Well, just as now, Jews took great pride in being Jews, in their history, in their great kings, in the great civilization they had, in being God's chosen people. It was as much a way of life as it was a worship of God. And to turn away from that would be to turn away from everything they knew about themselves. The Greeks, however, these pagans, had already given up their old ways to be God-fearers. They had turned away from the Greek and Roman gods and followed after the God of the Jewish Bible. These sincere God-fearers who, um, who had already seen the truth in Jewish scripture, however incomplete Jewish scripture was, because we know that the New Testament completes and explains the Old Testament, were more willing to embrace God's revealed truth in the gospel of the Messiah than those whose book it was from birth. And these former pagans would make up more and more of this Christian brotherhood as Paul continued preaching throughout pagan Europe. Verse 5 says, But the Jews were jealous, taking some wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Now the jealousy of the Jews of Thessalonica was twofold. Jealous of their traditions, their life, their, just everything about their lives. They were jealous to have that being challenged. But they were also jealous of the crowds that were turning away from them and their synagogue and following Paul and Silas in increasingly great numbers. These people were flocking to the message of the Apostle Paul. These jealous Jews used, the, um, used men who were described as rabble, okay? Uh, linguists say it really 
really means lowlifes, okay? Rabble's not the right word. These were lowlifes, and they were, our translation doesn't say it, but the Greek does, they were in, the, they were market people. They were people who were hanging around the marketplace. So they were lowlifes that just spent their days at the market in the square. So they used these people as the basis for a mob who through screaming and visit, I want you to pay attention to this. These low lives without a job. I didn't say they were living in their mother's basement, okay? I'm saying they were low lives without a job who used screaming and intimidation to stir up the populace, in this case, against Christians. I'd say it's ironic that this behavior is what they accuse of Paul and the other Christians of doing. They accuse them of, of causing an uproar, of turning the world upside down, when that is exactly what they were doing. They were the ones causing the uproar in the cities. We see that today as certain people accuse the normal populace of acts they themselves are actually committing. Of all the times in scripture that Christians are accused of creating an uproar, a riot, an insurrection, which is what they're charging here, will be charging against the Christians, an insurrection, never once was Christianity guilty of that offense. Christians did not do that. They obeyed the laws. What they were bringing might cause an uproar, but it wasn't the Christians instigating it. It's the other side and their reaction to what Christians were saying. The only way Christians have ever been involved in riots is as the victim. That's it. You see that with Paul. Have you ever seen Paul in Scripture create, uh, engage in violence against a person? No. Paul is always the victim. And we've seen that. We see that here in Thessalonica. We just saw it in Philippi. Uh, we saw it in city in Antioch. It's the old, you violent Christian, you hurt my fist with your face uh, excuse. So the mob goes looking for Paul and Silas at the home of their previously unnamed host, Jason. We know nothing about Jason. Okay? We didn't hear about him before. We now find out that he's, they're looking for Paul and Silas in the home of Jason. But this may be the Jason who is mentioned in Romans 16.21 uh, as Paul's signing off on that letter. Uh, he says, Timothy, my co-worker greets you as do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsman. We don't know that it's the same Jason, but it's somebody named Jason running in this orb. Uh, Jason was a very common Greek name, uh, Jason and the Argonauts, from my youth, you know. But also Jason was the name that Jews who were living among Gentiles would take if their name was Joshua. So Joshua, the Greek name that they would take, is Jason. So there were a lot of Jasons around. The mob did not find Paul and Silas at Jason's home. 
probably Jason and the other Christians had heard about what was going on and had hidden the missionaries safely away where they could not be found. And finally, verses 6 through 9 conclude, And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. They say that bad news travels fast. In this case, it's the good news. It's the gospel. But the word of what had previously transpired in Philippi has made it the 100 miles to Thessalonica in three weeks. So somebody wanted to get the word out. By the sound of it, Philippi was still in an uproar from uh, Paul and Silas's visit. Uh, Christianity has indeed turned Philippi upside down. Once again, the charge is disturbing the peace. And as I repeatedly say, the Pax Romana that has been zealously maintained by the Roman Empire for the past 75 years is one of the most serious charges you could have of disturbing that peace. Added to this charge this time is that they have their own king, King Jesus. Undoubtedly, this charge would derive from Paul's teaching on the kingdom of God and the, uh, and the kingship of Jesus in the world to come in the, uh, and in heaven as it was. The Jews probably intentionally used a confusion about another king to add to the seriousness of the charges. So the magistrates decide when Jason is brought before them to take money as security, to, to secure the peace. Think of it as, a, as bail or a bond. They took money and said, let's calm this all down here now. And they're calming the city. It is presumed that a condition of this bail is that Jason, just as Philippi did, will send Paul and Silas away from Thessalonica. Paul summarizes this event in his first letter to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians uh, 2, 14 through 18, where it says, for you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins but wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you, okay, Paul did not want to go. He says, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face 
because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. So Paul didn't want to go. Paul wanted to go back, was not allowed to go back. Elsewhere in his letters to the Thessalonians, we find that these Christians did indeed stand up against the forces arrayed against Christianity again and again, stood up to the persecution that had found them. So in in closing, you know, the events of 1776 and beyond, because the war didn't end in 1776, it didn't end in 1781 with the surrender at Yorktown. It dragged on for another couple years with skirmishes. But what happened after is well attested in both history and uh, beloved folklore. If you think about it, you know, the story of the revolution, revolution is almost biblical. We had an army of Davids standing up against the Goliath that was the most formidable military power in the world, England. And just like the shepherd boy prevailing in the end against all odds, against the giant, the Americans prevailed in their struggle. The events of those roughly eight years of the American Revolution did in turn, in fact, turn the world upside down as it announced the ascendancy of the new world over the old, uh, which would be finalized over the next two centuries as the upstart collection of states struggled in the wilderness and developed and perfected an uh, industrial base. But it pales. It pales in comparison to the world being upturned upside down by a few men on feet crossing Greece and eventually into Rome. The world-changing ministry of Paul and Silas turned the Roman Empire completely upside down. And while the riot-causing rabble of Thessalonica accused the missionaries of having done that, they actually didn't know how right they were. While they accused Christianity of disturbing the peace, what Christianity actually was disturbing was the darkness of paganism bringing the light of Jesus Christ and dispelling the tyranny of Satan and his demons with the kingdom of God and the kingship of Christ. 250 years later, the entire Roman Empire would declare itself Christian. Now, mind you, we don't know exactly how Christian that is. But they weren't any Christians when Paul and Silas set foot in Greece in 59 AD with simply the teaching of Paul and Silas and other faithful Christians the most extraordinary revolution would be accomplished good over evil light over darkness Christ over Satan and the world was truly turned upside down let's close in prayer